0: Of this Good morning! It's great to see you here today. I'm excited um, about what God has uh, for me to share continuing our Love Is series and today's topic is Love Forgives. We're just going to jump right in with uh, reading Second John uh, chapter 1 verses 5 and 6. And now dear lady, this is not a new command, but is the same command we have had from the beginning. I ask you That we all love each other. And love means living the way God commanded us to live. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is this, live a life of love. I, I don't know about you, but I have really, really been challenged uh, by this series on love. So if you think about it, um, there's lots of things in life that you can take lessons on to improve your skills, but you can't really go to the why and sign up for classes on love and forgiveness quite like you can for taekwondo or playing the guitar and so I have really appreciated this reminder and this practice uh, that has come from this series you know and, and where do we you know really honestly love and forgiving it's easier said than done right it, it really is if we're honest with ourselves And so where do we go to find out how to love, how to forgive. And well, you know, we go to the, the one who is love, our God, First John four sixteen, And so we know the love that God has for us, and we trust that love. We trust that love. God is love. Those who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. Love and forgiveness are a part of God's nature. They are at the core of who God is and why he does what he does. And if you think about it, we are created in God's image. So that must mean we have the capacity to love and forgive because we've been created in his image. But we also have that thing called the sinful nature in all of us which is that capacity to live for oneself to satisfy yourself's desires to put yourself above others you know to live opposite of what god has asked you to live and to live for yourself and not live a life of love and so there's a battle there there's a battle there between the god nature within us and then the sinful nature within us to do what is wrong and so you know, I think God knew about that battle. <laughs> he, he had a little heads up that was going to be coming. And so he sent us a helper, right? He didn't just leave us. Uh, he sent us a helper to show us how to live, how to love, how to forgive. And we're going to read about that helper in Galatians 5:16 and 17. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. That's why we just sang that song, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here you're welcome to guide our lives. Let the Holy Spirit guide your lives, and you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. In Romans 8, 6, it says, So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. And so we let the Holy Spirit lead us into love, lead us into forgiveness, show us how to live. Um, There was a mother, she was preparing pancakes uh, for her two sons, Kyle and Ryan, and while she was preparing the pancakes, a fight ensued, of course, about who would get the first pancake. And so she thought she could use this opportunity to teach a moral lesson. So she looked at her sons and said, Now, boys, if Jesus were here, he would say, Let my brother have the first pancake. I can wait. To which Kevin responded, Ryan, Ryan, you be Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, you be Jesus. It's your turn. You think about it. <laughs> Loving and with forgiving. Sometimes you want someone else to take a turn at that, right? <laughs> Let's let Ryan do the forgiving today. I don't feel like that. But, you know, being like Jesus is not easy. And you know, I wish there were lessons. Being like Jesus, man, those lessons sometimes are really hard to swallow. I think about lessons that I took when I was a kid. I love piano. I love piano ballad songs. I love hearing piano music. And so as a kid, my heart was really drawn towards the piano, and I really, really, really wanted to learn how to play. But my parents, you know, couldn't afford piano lessons, but I had this really gracious cousin who offered to teach me how to play. And I went to her house week after week after week trying to learn how to play, but Uh, I was not gifted with a music math brain. Uh, Don't ask me to play the piano for you, and please don't ask me to do math for you, because it will go bad. There was something about, I, I can read notes, I can read music, but there's something about then translating that in my head and then telling my fingers where to go on the keyboard that I cannot do in a timely manner. Right, So the song is like 30 minutes long when it's like a, a three-second piece that you first learn for your recitals or whatever. I could not do it. So that was a fight that I gave up. I mean, I loved it. I wanted it, but I gave up. And then I'm going to date myself here, but when I, uh, when I was in high school, I watched the movie Pretty in Pink. I'm not saying that's a good movie, but that's the movie I watched. And the, the main character... Uh, knew how to sew. And she, like, was all trendy. She didn't have any money. I didn't have any money. My parents couldn't buy me clothes. Her parents couldn't buy her clothes. So she was, like, sewing all these cool things. And I thought, oh, yeah, I can do that. So I begged for a sewing machine for Christmas. And then that poor same cousin was, was called upon. She got all the talent in the family, man. Talk about that. But she was called upon to help. Teach me how to sew. This dear lady. Oh, my word. So I get into trying to sew, and it does not go well. (laughs) My poor husband has to put his own buttons on his shirt. I mean, it is bad. It is so bad. And there was another fight. I really wanted it, but I gave up on it. I gave in. And to be honest with you, this thing, this love, this forgiveness thing at times, has been really hard. And I have really wanted to give up. But this is a fight I cannot afford to give in. I have got to be prepared and I have got to fight this thing to the finish. I have got to figure this out. And at the heart of the fight, the love fight, are those love is scriptures we've been looking at through this series Reading from 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. It never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Today we're going to focus on the latter part of verse 5, point number one. Love keeps no record of being wronged. While we are a record-keeping society, just think about how many records and receipts you have kept for this year's taxes. I mean, that's what we do. And... You know, as a mom, I was asked to keep records of things no human should keep records of. I mean, BBs, baby bowel movements. Not only did they ask me to count said bowel movements, but they asked me to note the color, the consistency. Really? That is not nice. Or right. And I think about Christmas lists. We have four kids. They're great kids, but trying to keep a list, trying to make sure you're spending the same amount of money on all four kids, trying to keep that balance of when one is a teenager, their presents are more more expensive, so they only have one present to open and the other has 25 because they're two and you can buy like a ton of stuff for little money, or Uh, You know, when you're like us and you live on a budget, you have to buy things when they're on sale. So you buy something in March, and then you don't find that something until the next March. (laughs) So you got to somewhere keep, (laughs) I not only have to keep a record of what I bought and who I bought it for, but where it's at. (laughs) Because you can't, there's not enough room to hide it all in one spot. You know, you got to spread it out, because if they find the one spot, you know, at least, you, you know, you cover your ground there. And now that I've admitted said lists exist, we all know what the Smith kids are going to be doing today after church. (laughs) They're going to be tearing it up, looking for the list. going to be checking it twice. But there's a God place in our hearts where we are not allowed to keep a list. We're not allowed to keep a record, and we're not allowed to keep receipts. That place of love, where love resides, um, love keeps no record of being wronged. In the early translations, it translated, thinketh no evil or thinks no evil. And the, the word, the term that Paul uses here hints toward a bookkeeping term, entering into a ledger, entering like a business entry in a ledger. And that led to the later translation saying keeps no record of being wronged. And in the business world, it is really important to keep a record. And it's really important to make entries in your ledger and to refer back to that when needed. But in the relationship world, it's not only unnecessary to keep a record of wrong, it's actually pretty harmful it's pretty harmful. Love keeps no record of being wronged. Have you ever had an argument where you went from hysterical to historical? (laughs) Where you were crazy, crazy angry and then all of a sudden you were doing a point-by-point history lesson on all the ways that a person has wronged you in the past and you just started bringing up time, thing after thing after thing. We've got to be careful. Love keeps no record of wrong. And uh, these scriptures, the love is scriptures, indicate that love does not make a permanent record of hurts and wrongs in order to hold those injuries against another person. Love is a protective covering. It protects our heart from resentment, which is a direct result of keeping a record of wrong. The basis of resentment is your hurt, your anger turned inward. And keeping lists, the resentment builds. Love does not harbor a sense of injury. It doesn't harbor that sense of injury. We read about what resentment can do in the book of Job. Job 5.2 says, Surely resentment destroys the fool and jealousy kills the simple. Well, I'm not a fan of being destroyed or of being a fool. So what what do I do about this resentment thing? And what do I do? To guard my heart. We can look at Job for an example of what to do because, man, this man faced down hurt and anger that could have led to resentment like no other human being. If you read his story, if you look at his life in one failed swoop, he lost all. He lost his children, he lost his livelihood, he lost his possessions, he lost everything was wiped away in a matter of minutes. And he sat there in, in his pain and in his hurt and in his inner injury and his friends came to sit with him. What would you say to your friend? Man, if your friend lost all of their children... If your friend lost all of their livelihood, all of their possessions, what would you say? Well, they had a lot to say. And most of it wasn't very good or helpful. It was judgmental, and they misspoke about God. And we get a glimpse of what Job was feeling, what his state of mind was like in Job 7.11, where he says, I cannot keep from speaking I must express my anguish. My bitter soul must complain. My bitter soul must complain. Job was facing the fight of his life. Would he become bitter? Would he become resentful or not? And so Job did something really, really smart. He decided to take his bitter complaints to God he decided to have a conversation with the Almighty. And he sat down. And at the beginning of the conversation, his focus was on things like, what did I do wrong? I'm a good person. There's no sin in me. What did I do to deserve this? Why are you picking on me? He said things like... Look at all those wicked people around me. Why don't you pick on them for a few minutes? Uh, Why aren't they hurting like I am? And he he had some questions for the Lord. I just want to say that I've found in life, uh, when difficult times come, these thoughts come like the rain, but they don't heal wounds, they deepen them. They are a barrier to healing. But then God speaks in this conversation. You know, Job had a wound so deep that the only place to find healing was in the presence of God. A God who is love and a God whose love we can trust. It was in his presence Job would find healing. And at the end of the conversation with God, this is what Job had to say in Job 42, 5 through 6. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. And I take back everything I said. I sit in the dust and ashes to show my repentance. He moved from bitter complaint and questioning to, oh My word, I have seen God face to face and I have no more complaining to do. Something about the presence of God, seeing him face to face brings us to that place where you know what? I have no more complaining to do. It's intriguing and interesting to me that God rebukes Job's friends and then he requires Job to pray for them. He says in Job 42, 7b-8a, I am angry with you and your two friends, for you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. So take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer on your behalf. What a precedent God set here that when someone has hurt you, judged you, that you're to pray for them. That you're to pray for their well-being. A simple prayer for someone who's done you wrong can go a long way in the fight against resentment, in the fight against keeping records of wrong and resentment. Point number two, love thinks no evil. I just want to take a a look just for a second and rest in how the earlier translation said, thinks no evil. I was reminded uh, of a time we we were living in the Chicago suburbs and we would go to the mall. And at the time, Hannah and Josiah were two and three years old. And they're all sweet and innocent looking now. But at two and three... (laughs) They were a dynamic duo. I mean, they gave me a run for my money. They were like, you know, the roadrunner or the Tasmanian devil. Wherever they went, there was like a trail of destruction following behind them. You know how two- and three-year-olds are. And they're 14 months apart, so they're really close. And, and they just, you've met their dad, right? They had a lot of energy. They just, and they were loud, and they just... Uh, they just were very energetic, good kids, and, and they, they did what we told them to do, but they just had this remarkable amount of energy and, and the ability to destroy things. <laughs> it was unprecedented. So, <laughs> we're, we, we, we would like to go to the mall because that's a lot of walking and it would get out their energy, and it was free. At that time, now you take a girl to the mall and you can't leave without buying them something. But, but at that time, we could take him to the mall. We wouldn't have to spend any money. And we could just walk them and walk them. And just walk around and around and around and hope that when we got home at night, they would go to bed. So we're walking the mall. And I, I take this double stroller where you can set two kids in it at a time because there's times when you just need to contain all that is the Smith children. There are times when you just needed to contain them. Uh, I remember the fun aunt in our family. She was a fun aunt. She dubbed them the holy terrors. (laughs) She's the fun aunt. You know you got troubles. Uh, When the fun aunt, she would call me and say, "My house is clean. Can you send over the holy terrors? (laughs) I'm ready for them." (laughs) And she would love for them to come and visit. So we're we're in this mall, and we're we're trying to contain these children. We walk by this uh, salon that has this great sale, and Jeff and I, you know, we needed a haircut, and even if we didn't, we were on a budget, and hey, that was a price that couldn't be beat, so we're getting haircuts. <laughs> so we go in and we sign the list, and there's kind of a long line, and I'm like in my mind thinking, okay, how are we gonna make this happen? They're gonna call Jeff, his, you know, it won't take long to do his hair, I'll be with the kids, and then we'll make the swap. Well, I thought wrong, because like two seconds after he sat in his chair, they called my name. And I'm like, I stand up to let her know I know she's called my name, but then I look at my kids, and then I look over to Jeff, because I'm trying to gauge how how far she is in this haircutting deal, and then I'm picturing myself like stuck in the chair, and then Hannah Houdini, Hannah, Hannah was like, Hannah Dini, she... Three point, four point harnesses could not keep her uh, in a car. She could, like, she'd get her leg up and over her head, and up. she would weave out of those things. You could not keep her contained. And so I was looking at the stroller thinking, that's just a little buckle. (laughs) Okay, how long till I'm sitting in this chair, I've got this thing over me, and a lady with scissors in my hair, is Hannah going to figure out? Her, that it's her moment of opportunity to escape this stroller and wreak havoc throughout the whole mall. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to gauge, how am I going to do this? So I, I'm looking at Jeff, I'm looking at the kids, I'm looking at the lady, I don't know what to do, this, this whole thing is going on in my head, and the lady's like, are you coming? And I'm like, well, what do I do with them? And she's like, well, just leave them there. And I'm like, you have not met my children. That cannot happen. I cannot just leave them here. And so I look back at Jeff, I'm gauging, looking at the kids, I'm looking at her, I look at Jeff. And I finally say, I'm just gonna have to wait. And I just point at my husband. Well, she doesn't know that's my husband, right? She just knows I'm sitting here with two kids. My gesture, I'm just gonna have to wait. Well... Here's where it went bad, because uh, she decided that because she was African American, and I was looking at her, and I kept looking at the other hairstylist who was not African American, who was white, that I had an inner struggle of not wanting an African American to touch my hair and cut it, and that I was thinking I wanted to wait for that hairstylist over there. And so she let me have it. (laughs) You know, how many times have we done that in life? Where we have judged the actions of someone else, uh, where we're harboring a sense of injury, and we have never ever gone and allowed them to explain themselves. We've never had a conversation and asked, why did you do what you did? We just think evil. Love thinks no evil. We find in the Bible that uh, Jesus uh, faces people thinking evil thoughts about him. And he was healing one day, and he healed this blind man, and he said to the blind man, Be encouraged, your sins are forgiven. And we'll pick up the story in Matthew chapter 9, verses 3 and 4, and how some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This man speaks as if he were God. That is blasphemy. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why are you thinking evil thoughts? I mean, these guys watched Jesus heal person after person after person. They heard him teach time after time after time with wisdom and understanding beyond any other man. Yet they chose to think evil of him. They chose to think he was a deceiver. And they chose to think that he was not the Messiah. And those evil thoughts then led to jealousy. And then they started keeping records of wrong against him. They started naming all the times that they did things he, they felt were wrong. Which weren't, but they felt they were wrong. And then they started plotting to kill him. And they carried out the plot. So their evil thoughts led down a trail of resentment, down a trail of keeping a record of wrong, to the point of wanting to, to do away with them. They lacked a certain amount of First Corinthians love. Their heart was not protected with a love that keeps no record of wrong. Love isn't quick to judge the acts and motives of others. And I'm not talking here about um, refusing to believe that there's evil in the world or people who are destructive. And I'm not asking you to be a doormat and let people walk on you. But what I'm saying is, when you're hurt, don't be so quick to judge the motives or intent of the person who hurt you. Don't be so quick. You know, godly people who love the Lord and who know the word make mistakes. And sometimes godly people who really love Jesus are going to hurt you. And I'm going to ask you to not be too quick to judge them I'm going to ask you not to throw them out of the game because of their one mistake. You know, the one and done policy, there's no room for that in the life of a believer. All right, you did that, you're out. You know, you're on my bad list. I'm not giving you any good recommendations. Whenever I talk about you, I'm going to say the truth, which is you're a jerk. And I'm done with you. There's no room for that in the life of the believer. We have to give grace just as God has given grace to us. We have to make room for mistakes. And I want to tell you you have to address wounds. When someone hurts you, you have to address that. Unaddressed wounds lead to infections. Hebrews 12.15 says, Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. If you leave a wound unaddressed, it's going to lead to resentment, it's going to lead to bitterness, and it's not only going to trouble you, here it says it's going to grow and corrupt many. Many. So we have to find healthy ways to take care of our wounds. Um, And I I can't believe I have to say this, but I'm going to say it. Facebook is not the place to take care of your wounds. (laughs) That, you know, broadcasting your wounds is not helpful. Resentment is a growing baby fed by the retelling of the story of the wound over and over again. You know, it's such a battle. I mean, when we're wounded and hurt, you know, first we call our mom. They wounded me. They hurt me. And then we go to work, and then we tell our coworkers about the wound, and then we got hurt. And then we go to Target on our lunch break, and we run into somebody we know at Target, and we tell them about the wound. And then at dinner time, we tell our spouse all about it. And then after dinner, we call our friends and we tell them all about it. And before we know it, this is a really big baby. It has grown and it has gotten out of control. So I would say to you, when you're wounded, not to broadcast it. I would say to you to go to that person directly and address the wound. And I would say to you, if that's not enough, that you pick a spiritual leader in your life. Someone who's trustworthy. Someone who, we call it a cone of silence. Whatever whatever I say to you stays with you and it doesn't go anywhere else. Someone who won't judge the characters in your story and who won't judge you. Someone who won't retell the story ever. But you go to them, talk to them, tell them what you've done, tell them how you addressed it with the person, tell them that it's still festering, wound, and ask them to pray with you and give you spiritual guidance. And listen, pick somebody who can tell you the truth. Because, honey, sometimes you're the problem. <laughs> I know, it's hard. But sometimes we're the one that's wrong. And we need someone who will be honest and tell us, you know what? This time it's on you. You know, And then they'll hold you accountable to take care of it because this time it's on you. But you have got to take care of wounds in a proper manner, in a way that's healthy for you, but also love and protects the person who wounded you. Here's a prayer that we can pray. Dear Lord, so far today I've done well. I haven't gossiped. I haven't been boastful, proud, or rude. I haven't been selfish or demanded my own way. I haven't kept a record of wrong. And I'm very thankful for that. But in a few minutes, Lord, I'm going to get out of bed. (laughs) And from then on, I'm probably going to need a whole lot of help. (laughs) A whole lot of help. Point number three love knows how to forgive. We hear that term forgive and forget a lot, but I am convinced that God is the only one who can truly forget. I mean, it is really hard. Isn't it hard? And the thing is, is forgiveness puts a protective covering uh, over our heart that protects us from resentment and bitterness, but it does not stop the effects of sin. So if someone hurts you or harms you, and then there's residual effects, uh, uh, it it comes back. You know, through weeks and months after whatever they did, j- just because of nature taking its course, and you're you're re- constantly reminded of the wounds. So you've forgiven, and you thought you've moved on, but then you're in that place where, bam, you're, you're reminded, and all of a sudden the wound is like wide open again, and then you're right back to that place where uh, you could start developing resentment again, where you could start retelling the story, where you can start down that path. And so we just need to realize that uh, it becomes a spiritual discipline uh, where when, the, when we're in those moments where we're reminded of the wound that's been forgiven, that we've moved on, that we cannot rest there in that wound again and start the process all over again. We have got to let it go and move on in life. And I know that's easier said than done, and, and, and I often ask myself, how can I forgive? And Peter asked Jesus this question in Matthew 18, 21 through 35, the story of the unmerciful servant. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold, along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned, to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, Please be patient with me, I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. And here's what we can learn from this story that Jesus told. Remember what your king did for you. The unmerciful servant, he did not follow the example of his king. And he did not remember what had been done for him. We must follow Jesus' example. For he has forgiven each of us of much. And we must, in turn, be willing to forgive others, first John one nine, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. And when he forgives, he forgets and he keeps no records of wrong it's done. The next thing we can learn from this story is release the offender from your judgment. the unmerciful servant was unwilling to patiently and kindly release the debt owed like it was done for him. Once you follow Jesus' example in forgiving, now it's time to release that person. You can't ask them to earn your forgiveness. Don't hold them hostage to your resentment and continuing judgment in your list of wrongs. Release them to God. Let Him set them down. He can deal with them. Your job is to release them. Many of you may have read the book The Hiding Place, or and I know this part of the book has been read before um, here at Horizon, but it's just such a great example of how to forgive um, that I wanted to share it again. Uh, co- It's a book written by Corrie Ten Boom, and she was a Dutch Christian uh, who led an underground movement to get Jews um, out of Nazi Germany and to be saved uh, from going to concentration camps in the Holocaust. And as a result of her work, she was placed, arrested, and placed in a concentration camp along with her sister and her brother, Uh, both who passed away while in concentration camps, but she um, lived to tell her story. It was, this is what's written in her book, it was a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Robinsburg. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time, and suddenly it was all there. A room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message for all I said, to think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine And I, who had preached so often to the people in Blumenthal, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile I struggled to raise my hand and I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer, Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. Well, into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command the love itself.